Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Shelby Perkins. We're at Bracken Vineyard in Polk County. It's November 14th, 2019. Thank you so much for joining us today, Shelby. We appreciate it. Thank you for coming out to see me. <laughs> Let's start with the most important question, which is why wine? Why wine? Let's see, I was a nuclear waste lawyer and I was practicing law for the Department of Energy in Washington, D.C. And I met my husband there. Uh, uh, he was an intellectual property lobbyist that happened into an establishment I happened to be sitting in across from the White House one Friday evening as I was meeting with uh, a group of would-be filmmakers. They were looking to make a schoolhouse rock based on <laughs> renewable energy. And they didn't know what to do with nuclear issues, so they invited me along. And uh, this is the off-the-record bar, and they based me in the Adams Hotel across from the White House, and he walked in, and, you know, I immediately thought he was pretty cute. Um, my life changed considerably uh, after meeting him. Uh, a lobbyist lifestyle is quite different from a government lawyer's. I found my evenings consumed with his business meetings. And as I started looking into new careers or trying to find ways for our lives to mesh, uh, I was also going out to dinner quite a bit. And there's only so much time one can spend talking about intellectual property before they really just want to keel over if they're not really interested in the topic. And the only other person in a restaurant you can really talk to ad nauseum about anything is if the chef's not available is a sommelier. So I had many uh, occasions to speak to wine professionals in Washington, D.C. Uh, and many of them uh, led me through their interests in wine. So um, basically at these business dinners, I was the beneficiary of, uh, the happenstance beneficiary of many fabulous wines. And <laughs> I walked into work day after day pretty exhausted from being up all night. Uh, at these dinners and uh, I was looking to make a change in employment when someone came to me and said hey I've got this thing uh, somebody nobody can go on this trip to Antarctica it's paid for and all you have to do is get down to Buenos Aires with your winter gear <laughs> And so I walked into work and I told my boss, hey, you know, I, I've been having some questions about my direction at work and I've been offered this job. Um, I want to go on it. And he said, well, we need to do an investigation. Uh, this is a gift. Someone's trying to influence you. And I told him, basically, I, I'm going to go on this trip and whether I come back is up to you. <laughs> <laughs> so I go down to Antarctica. I came back. I quit my job. And I, I, I did a number of different things afterwards. They kept asking me at Department of Energy what I wanted to do. And I said I just wanted to do something more creative. Um, 
I really enjoyed the work that I had been doing on cleaning up the nation's nuclear weapons and nuclear waste in Yucca Mountain, but at heart I was an environmentalist and my work was increasingly security oriented and less environmental oriented. And uh, while I was able to work on a number of really interesting things, I wanted to branch out. So I worked with some friends on a climate change project related to Google. It was going to be a film project. Uh, they didn't end up using it. I did a fellowship at National Academy of Science looking at emerging technology policy and brain implants and climate geoengineering and synthetic biology and you know that that ran the course I handled Obama's legal issues for the southern half of New Mexico during his election and uh, that ran its course and finally uh, I had an interest in one I really wanted to go work a harvest and I went out to Healdsburg basically uh, Someone in my husband's company made a connection and I went out to go work with John Holdridge in Healdsburg uh, in Sonoma County and uh, the other, uh, my compatriot, the other intern was one of the Martinelli family and she and I had a blast and I came back home and I, I was certain that that's pretty much that I wanted to do. But, however, we had already decided we wanted to li live in Santa Fe. We still moved to Santa Fe. I spent a couple of years there painting, but I was flying back and forth or driving back and forth to California working harvest. And uh, yeah, the bug bit me, uh, really, because I sat around at dinner tables in Washington not wanting to listen to anything else about intellectual property. I mean, thankfully, the, the company my husband was working for uh, they had a real interest in food. Uh, he was working for Nathan Mirvold, an intellectual ventures at the time. And Nathan was also busy at work on this, this massive cookbook called Modernist Cuisine. It, 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 it encompasses about 45 pounds of ink in a multi-volume photography effort to really show how food cooks. Uh, and he adapted a lot of photography uh, in a laboratory to show how uh, how, how, how cuisine could be uh, modernized with all kinds of techniques. So, uh, yeah, that really also had a real influence on me in terms of um, the fact that cuisine and food could be academic after coming from an academic background. So that was the, that was the beginning. Tell me about after living in the city, mm. working these kind of jobs, what it was like working a harvest that was, what was that like for you uh, in, compared to what you had been working on uh, before that? <laughs> well, it, 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 I, I began life as an outdoors person. I mean, I grew up in upstate New York and my family would take me fishing or fly fishing or hiking and biking on weekends. And uh, you know, even into college, um, I I went to I went to a high school that was uh, really oriented towards outdoors. And in college, I ran the outdoors club. I began uh, raft guiding during the summer. I tried waiting tables for 45 minutes. <laughs> that didn't go so well. Uh, I don't have very good sense of balance or patience for many kinds of people. So. I, uh, 
I, I, I ended up uh, staying outside and, and doing guide work. And the day after we graduated from college, my boyfriend at the time and I drove to Bend, Oregon. And we lived in Bend for a couple of years. I was still doing guide work, working in archaeological digs, working for a water testing laboratory, doing water uh, testing work for Deschutes Brewing and Bend Brewing at the time. Uh, but I was getting bored. And at the time, everybody was trying to live in Bend. And um, so I ended up going back to school, but not, not until after I spent a couple months down in Baja sea kayaking. Um, yeah, I uh, got into Vermont Law in their master, environmental, Masters of Environmental Law program, so I spent a year up in Vermont, um, uh, also in the outdoors, studying environmental law and the policy of environmental uh, action. And during college, I had done, um, I had a business major with uh, environmental studies geology minor. I started off as an art major and something went completely awry. I don't know what happened, <laughs> but I found, uh, I found geology classes because we had to draw fossils and I was able to move, move my artistic interest into the geosphere, as it were. Um, part and parcel to that degree, I had to do a policy class and I wrote a paper on Yucca Mountain. And Yucca Mountain is where we're supposedly supposed to put all of the new nation's nuclear waste. And however a billion dollars later, it's still not open. Uh, fa fast forward to having an interview with the Department of Energy when they call me for an ECHO, like an environmental internship, uh, in their nuclear weapons cleanup office. The Cold War had ended. And under the Clinton administration, they had entered an era of cleaning up nuclear waste. And the person who called me to interview me had been at a Natural Resources Defense Council and he recognized in me probably fairly green leanings. And I had joked about my paper where I'd written about a earthquake knocking down the trailer with the seismic equipment at Yucca Mountain. And, and I knew a little bit about the history of the agency, that it wasn't in, uh, the Department of Energy wasn't an energy agency. It was a nuclear weapons agency. And so that resonated with him. And so they took me in. They needed employees because in 1995, there was a reduction in workforce. So when I got into the office, there was no one near my age by 20 years. I was 20 years younger than just about everybody else in the offices, which made me the de facto expert on anything electronic. <laughs> and so I built a, a visual archive of the nuclear weapons complex. I worked on a number of different issues for them. And, um, you know, I really just intended to be, continue to do outdoors work, but this position found me and it, 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 it actually conditioned me into very long-term thinking. Uh, and systems thinking, complexity thinking. And that has been a blessing and a curse. <laughs> I went back to law school, came back again in a different capacity. Um, I, I didn't intend to come back to Department of Energy, but through a series of events that might require a harder beverage. Um, I, I came back and worked in the Office of General Counsel as an attorney on Yucca Mountain, so that's civilian radioactive waste coming from energy plants, not the, the, the weapons side of things. So, so I guess that's my long way of coming around to say that 
I was never a city person, but, but just by happenstance, I, I ended up in DC uh, because I, I, I pulled the string of an interest in, in environmental challenges that were highly complex. I mean, my interest in preserving the outdoor was, outdoors was spending a lot of time indoors often in windowless offices, which I think ev eventually unraveled me. And by the time I got to Antarctica, there's no way I could be shoved back into an office ever again. I was left on an island by this British explorer to just hang out with some sea lions and penguins for a few hours. And I think after that, I, I just, I recognized that uh, the indoor life really wasn't for me, that I had the capacity to do that work. I just was fighting battles that really maybe weren't my own to uh, make my life sustainable. And uh, well, wine, uh, you know, wine started indoors, but then I pulled that string and it turns out, you know, it, it involves a lot of production um, that's quasi indoors and then certainly into the vineyard, which is outdoors. And as it turns out in the last year since I've been on this vineyard, I've, I'm outside every day, all winter long, all summer, all spring. And I find that very fulfilling. Um, so, so, so the transition from city to country was really a, a return, mm -hmm. a very long-winded tour, bopping off the pinball, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, pinball, um, basically uh, all of the little, I don't know, bumpers? Bumpers. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a long, tortured path. <laughs> you mentioned, you talk about being bitten by the bug. So your, 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 your history with wine was mostly drinking good wine and hearing about it from sommeliers. Tell, yeah. me, tell me about your first time working with it from that perspective and what, what, what bit you exactly? Well, I already had some experience fermenting beverages. Uh, certainly when I was working uh, uh, on Deschutes and Ben Brewing's water issues, Ben Brewing, you know, as the beneficiary of underfills and yeast slurry and free hops. And so there was some fermentation that may or may not have occurred back then. Um, but uh, just the processing of the fruit, and I think I fell in the, the, the love with the culture of Sonoma County. And I think uh, Tessa Britton, um, who's one of the, the, the current grandkids in the Martinelli family, brought a lot of that kind of Sonoma pride to uh, where I was working. And the following year, I ended up staying with her out on Water Trough Road, the Bondi Home Ranch, uh, which is one of the Martinelli sites, and working for her father at uh, Maramar Torres. So I guess I kind of just fell in, into a culture that I, I really liked. And it was more pastoral uh, than I was used to. And, you know, from a really basic level, I had been working on cleaning up the nation's nuclear waste issues. I mean, that is a really, you know, that's a real sad, you know, uh, history that we have. And what I saw going out to Sonoma was really, you know, a prideful, um, uh, peaceful, uh, peace-worthy and... Um, I would say, you know, beneficial path uh, for humanity. I like to think that I used to clean up for war and now I'm at peace. So I think that just on a really basic level is a, a turn in, the, in a better direction for uh, sustainability at large, <laughs> which really was the path in the first place. You know, finding something that was creative um, 
because I intended to study art that I, I, I never went to preschool or kindergarten. My parents sent me to art school. So creation was really endemic. And then, you know, uh, preservation of the environment and thinking about sustainability. Um, I guess that's what I'm carrying over now and wrestling with what the most enduring, permanent, sustainable path is when it comes to farming. So I think that complex uh, reality. I mean, of course, it needs to be economically sustainable as well, mm-hmm. but um, it, durable farming is definitely an interest of mine. I think whether you call it permaculture, whether you call it, uh, you know, organic, what have you, but durability mm-hmm. is, I think, what everybody's seeking in their own health and then also in social constructs that give continuity and safety and security. I mean, these are all, these are all uh, ideas that can be applied to just about whatever you do in the, in the course of your day. So let's talk more about that. What, how, what do you consider your relationship with the land and environment? We'll, we'll back up a little bit because I'm curious how you got to Oregon. Before <laughs> yeah, that, how, how, do you, how do you consider your relationship with the land and the environment as you're, as you're creating this? Yeah, how did I get to Oregon? Uh, well, on the, on the note of sustainability, uh, I you know, worked so in Mar 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 Taurus, and I finally moved out to Oregon, or sorry, to California. Uh, I moved to Calistoga from Santa Fe um, because it was clear that I wasn't going to stay in Santa Fe and the bug was so bad that I, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I ended up in Calistoga working for Chris Howell at Kane up on Spring Mountain. It's about a 500-acre ranch that's, that's managed biodynamically up on the border of Sonoma and Napa counties. And Chris is wonderful. He's a philosophy graduate from the University of Chicago. So he had kind of in the, the intellectual wherewithal to engage in, in these banters that I, I was really kind of uh, exploring, especially when it came to environmental modeling and what is climate change. And this is back, you know, in 2011. So I don't think the, the, the climate change uh, conversation had really come to a head in terms of you know, anthropogenic climate change and in, in, in the Bush administration was still trying to kind of fight, you know, fight that a little bit, you know, and, and, and kind of left the Obama administration with trying to, you know, root out uh, the kind of these, these, these kind of uh, fallacies that, that, that were endemic to institutions. So I, I think as a society, maybe we'll get there. Anyway, um, yeah, so after my time had passed, a year had passed at Kane, I, I wanted to head back over to the Sonoma side of the mountains. Things were a little bit quieter, a little less industrial over there, maybe a little bit more sustainability or sustainability oriented and less monoculture. Um, and uh, I rented a, rented a house on a, on a farm and started making some wines over there. Uh, I got fruit from the Teldesky uh, Ranch, 130-year-old vines, uh, Zinfandel vines, and, and, and Ray Teldesky was kind to share that fruit with me. And that was a real honor, uh, given my interest in kind of the, the social fabric and the kind of historical fabric of Sonoma. But 
over the few years that I was there, we, you know, we had a well that went dry a couple of times. We were watching fires up in Polk County, or sorry, Polk, <laughs> sorry. Well, we are now. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, we, we can't even say that yet. That's just a, just a horrifying thought. Um, over in the, uh, the other side of Alexander Valley and getting up into the counties above Sonoma, and I, uh, combined with property values, I, I just couldn't figure out how owning land and having, you know, a sustainable farm for me to go out to pasture, so to speak, would, would even be possible. Mm -hmm. um, so, 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 during that time, I had, um, during my, my, I guess, over the course of my 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 wine interest, I had become certified as a sommelier. I had gone to the Wine and Spirit uh, Education Trust and gone through my level one and my two, my three, my diploma in wine, and I had applied to and was accepted into the Master of Wine program. And part and parcel to preparing myself for the Master of Wine, I was over in France for a month and I was driving around meeting with about three or four winemakers a day. I just had a, a crazy, you know, schedule where, you know, haul through champagne, go down to Burgundy, you know, drive over to Bordeaux, go down to Gaillac, meet with an MW, do some tastings, roll over to Provence, go up the Rhone, fly out of Lyon, back home. And by the time I got home, I realized, wow, you know, I've been making these. I, I, I stumbled my way into some beautiful uh, Zinfandel, but I really wanted to be making really high acid whites. I fell in love with Chablis, Cote de Blanc, and Champagne. And I realized I wanted to be making different, a different kind of wines entirely. And I was probably in the wrong place. I'd maybe have to move out to the coast or somewhere up into Anderson Valley. Or uh, some friends had started moving up to Oregon. So I came up and I, I looked around and I, 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 I met some really fabulous people in the industry up here. I think at one point I was uh, speaking to Tomasov, who's mm -hmm. now at Lingua Franca, and Deolinda Coelho walked through and uh, said, hey, if you ever need a place to make some wine, uh, let me know. Uh, Tom, I was like, yeah, you should probably, you should definitely do it. It sounds like what you're going to do is, you know, like really in line with the chemistry up here. And I spoke to some other people. Anthony King was fabulous. He was trying to find me fruit. He was calling all kinds of people. Eventually, I put an ad in Wine Business Classifieds for organic Chardonnay. Like, nobody's going to find me, or, you know, like biodynamic or organic Chardonnay. And sure enough, Dan Renke. Johan types, sends me a little note. He says, I've got some biodynamic Chardonnay for you. I said, okay, I'll take it. And he uh, says, like, do you want to taste it first? I'm like, no, I'm sure it'll be fine. <laughs> I fly up next, you know, next time I fly up, I'll, I'll come say hi. And sure enough, I, I, I signed a contract with Puelo just so I had a place to land and picked up my fruit, made a lot of wine, just a, a couple of tons of wine at, uh, at Coelho, and that was in 2016. So I just jumped right in. I think when I was studying for the Master of Wine, I really didn't have chops in the industry, so I was kind of using it as a device to, you know, be a little bit more academic and force myself to learn. And I realized in the blind tastings, I didn't have the, I didn't have the, uh, I guess the head game, like the tennis game, to keep it together for the blind tastings. Furthermore, we were outside of Healdsburg, and so we had these Sunday morning tastings in Napa, 
and I would have had people visiting all day long and we'd be putting out food and it kind of got a little, you know, buck and all oriented in the sense that I'd wake up on a Sunday morning with a terrible hangover, have to drive an hour down to Napa and sit in front of like 12 wines under fluorescent lighting, which is just infuriatingly just painful. Um, so that's not exactly how I wanted to enjoy wine. Um, and I, I felt like I needed to make a decision as to what I was really trying to do. So uh, it, it all made sense to come up here and start looking around for some land and, and, and divert away from the, uh, the, the lovely uh, um, Master of Wine program. I met some incredible people and uh, just get kind of back on with my life of where I really wanted to go. So, so in two, a year ago, uh, we found some, a year and a half ago, we found this property. It became available, and I had been looking for three years, you know, three, two or three years, um, quietly for land. It was extremely competitive and hard to find things, and I think as a woman, too, people might not have taken me seriously that I was really looking for land, um, or that I even had the decision-making capacity <laughs> in the relationship, in my, <clears throat> my relationship, uh, to, to be the, the, the uh, determining uh, uh, person. Uh, and, uh, yeah, um, we, I basically closed on the property on August 31st of 2018, and we started picking grapes on September 6th. <laughs> so six days later, we were uh, starting to get ready to, to make some wine. And so it was a little bit of a, a mad rush. And just this year, I'm kind of starting to slow down from that and think about it. We first came into the Bracken Vineyard, and basically we're in southern Eola Amity Hills on the west side. We're just next door to Sojourner, so we're just uphill from Sojourner. And then down below uh, Denny, Denny um, Passau's property is Eola Springs that I used to own, now owned by uh, Judy Jordan and Capra Vineyards. Uh, and so, and about a week after I purchased my property, uh, Joe Dobbs bought uh, a, a just down the road. So we have kind of an interesting little, uh, you know, mix of folks up here on the hillside, so to speak. The wine enclave up here. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So it's quiet. It's a beautiful view. We're up at 700 feet, and we have views up and down the valley. It's pretty exposed. There's a lot of wind, keeping those grapes pretty dry, pretty shallow soils. I, I looked at geology, I looked at zoning, I, you know, all of that, those complex data sets I like to crunch on, um, I think it made me into a very fussy, um, you know, uh, sh land shopper, but eventually uh, we found our spot. Were there specific things you were looking for that w that you absolutely had to have in the property you were looking for? I was looking for shallow soils. Um, I was looking for, um, I don't know, you know, you start, you could, I could, I could go through the laundry list of the specific things I was looking for, but I think beyond what that data set might be, you know, is it a place? Does it have, you know, that feeling, first of all, that it could be a home? Um, but also that it, it, it met those factors that I was looking for. And it just turned out that this place was planted in 2016 and the person who had developed it w didn't really have interest in making wine. Um, so, so I really rolled in and, and picked the first grapes. Um, 
I wouldn't have planted all of this Pinot Noir. I was interested in making Chardonnay. So I guess at some point you just need to settle on the things you can live with. But, you know, the Witzel, the Rittner, you know, the, these Nikaya, these kind of shallow soils that we have, the fact that it's volcanic, the fact that we have wind and we're proximate to the Van Duzer corridor. Of course, that's going to be interested, you know, of interest to me because, you know, part of my work in the past was defending climate scientists. I know exactly where the climate's going to go. I, I used to work on climate geoengineering policy. I know what, you know, you know, there must be enough interest in in what's happening out there um, that we need to start making different decisions about how things are cited. Um, I, I don't know how to, to, to explain that otherwise um, put. We're definitely entering an era where, where here in this Anthropocene, we should be making decisions around long-term risk mm -hmm. and climate, climactic events um, that could uh, definitely threaten the security of food Human welfare, first of all, but food, you know, food sources, and then you know, uh, any kind of farming activities. I wouldn't. I would, I would certainly put wine into a food category. <laughs> but um, yeah. So what were you when you? Uh, did I answer your question, you did. or did I just tailspin into I think, I think penumbra? You did, but I'm, but I'm curious, with, with that in mind, as you were looking for it, what about this site spoke to you as something that would have more long-term safety, less long-term risk? In terms of a site, mm -hmm. higher elevation, mm -hmm. uh, proximity to cooling influences. Mm -hmm. um, I, being, uh, I think that we can look at the examples of California and say, being away from areas that haven't uh, that have forests that have not been managed um, being away from uh, well one <clears throat> okay one 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 really strong factor that was of concern to me when looking at sites was areas where I would not be near toxicity mm -hmm. spray drift mm -hmm. Um, the great thing about the Willamette Valley is it's not monoculture. The challenge of siting a vineyard is that it's not monoculture. Uh, you can't expect other industries to have the same economics and philosophies, groups, <coughs> groups of philosophies or segment of philosophies that grape growing has or wine growing has. They have much different competing interests, and they have very, depending on what industry is, they must, it might have lesser margin. So knowing that, and, and knowing a lot about the toxicity of substances and how they move through the air and through the geosphere, considering modeling those things is what I did for a living, or representing the, the scientists that were handling that modeling, I, I didn't want to even engage in that uh, consideration, <clears throat> or of any, I don't want to consider any sites where I, I would I would have that. So being having neighbors that are like-minded mm -hmm. makes uh, it kind of reduces the friction. 
And I think that becomes important. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really baseline. I think, and then at that point, coming into the property, pulling out all of the legacy things. I think I mentioned earlier, when you, when you, when you come into a property and, and, and you assess what you have there, sometimes there's some legacy wastes. And thankfully, these are not legacy nuclear waste. It's not toxic waste, but piles of cement or, uh, or, or uh, posts or things in the soil. I, I, I spent a lot of time over the last year thinking, I can't wait to get to a point of no-till. But first, I need to actually physically, mechanically clean the soils because I might find a shotgun shell or insulators from old uh, fences, um, plastic ties that are used in the vineyard uh, are the bane of my existence. Once you get a plastic in a soil and it breaks down, how will you ever get it out? And I, I think our industry can do better in terms of uh, creating materials that could actually feed soils versus poison them. There's no reason why that couldn't be a chitin or a polysaccharide that could actually feed a fungus. Um, so my, my, I've been on a massive rampage in the last year against plastics and vineyards, just because I think it, the soil is everything and soil cleanliness is everything. And so I think I've spent, a good part of my last year focused on making sure and sifting through my soils mechanically and making sure, just walking up and down the rows to make sure that there's nothing there that I don't want there. Um, yeah, it's been a big first step. And then you move into an era of having the luxury of, you know, okay, yeah, we've taken chemicals out, you saw the vineyard, this vineyard was initially established to be sprayed. So the structures of the grapevines were bamboo and not metal rods. So any of the, un you can't really till underneath the rows because there's no metal rods there to protect the vines. And so I also spent a good part of my year weed whacking because under vine, you know, cultivation isn't possible because I'm not gonna be spraying. So un unraveling the choices that it were made um, based on creating a vineyard uh, at the, the outset they intended to create a, a vineyard that was going to be sprayed mm -hmm. with herbicides mm -hmm. and so now now pulling away that that those 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 approaches i'm left with less options going forward until the vines get a little bit older mm -hmm. and then i can you know not only be organic but then i can think about um going towards uh, no cultivation in the middle of my rows. We're just going to 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 all mowing. It's it's really difficult um, when tilling begins because it was mentioned earlier. Gophers start going everywhere. From the tilling, you end up getting a lot of thistle starts going everywhere, and you you have a cascade of effects that are difficult to stop and it takes a number of years to stop and I think for many years people told me I can even remember meeting like Anne-Claude Laflave and and I was, in, I was at an event like in Italy and I was so excited to talk to her about biodynamics and but what ended up remaining in that conversation with her is that like you know, you know at the end of the day how long is this organic thing going to take and how long does it really take she's like it takes five years you got to put in the solid five years to get past that and i'm really feeling that now and i understand why that is because getting the thistle out 
is, is going to be a pain. Handling, dealing with my under vine situation is going to be a real pain. And my vines are, you know, the, the bamboo is kind of rotted away. And unless I go in and I put some stakes in there and, and three-year-old grapevines, which is ridiculous, uh, you know, they're going to be, you know, they're going to be tilted to the side and I have to go out there and straighten them all up. And it's, it's maddening, but it's my philosophical path to move things in that direction because it's what I believe in because at the end of the day, I'm a tree-hugging enviro, man. This is, this is, I was an outdoors person who studied environmental law, got into toxics. I don't want the toxics. I, I, I'm, I'm, having been a federal attorney handling toxic waste issues, I'm insanely leery of chemicals that come in bottles where people are just saying either A, it does cause cancer or it doesn't. Or, uh, corporations, my husband's a lobbyist. After I understood how he operates in government, I realized what I was doing as a federal attorney was a complete waste of time because his interactions on the Hill are way more effective than what I could be doing in a, in a sitting in a government office. At the end of the day, and this is a commentary about the fact that government, members of Congress and Senate, are way understaffed. They're woefully understaffed because their budgets are limited. They end up relying on their constituents, whether they're corporate or otherwise, for the knowledge that they take to vote on bills. Without that knowledge, they can't even do their jobs because their staffers can't be subject matter experts in everything. So they rely on their constituents and the constituents roll in and they give them the information that they have to regulate. Agencies are not much different. And so we have a, we have a, a system of regulation in our country that's been spood fed to the government. And so I think when you look at, when you look at anything that's regulated, you need to take those numbers with a grain of salt. That is to say, risk. Is it high magnitude? Is it high probability? Is it low probability? Is it high magnitude? What does that graph look like? And what is the threshold? Um, really, what do people say? What do they talk about? I mean, I think the data set needs to be, on, be beyond what, what a government agency uh, tells you because they could be beholden to uh, their constituencies, their corporate constituents. And this, I'm not saying anything that anyone doesn't already know or they talk about in the news, but it's not just cynicism, it's reality. It's how our system works. And therefore, I, I, I really, I, I can't, I have a zero tolerance for those products. Mm -hmm. and, and I think we can do better by um, giving our soils what they need and what they want um, without uh, the help of something that comes to you in a bottle mm -hmm. or a bag. Mm -hmm. And I think we'd be a much healthier place. I, I, I was the beneficiary of a, uh, being a, a member of an organizational uh, trip down to Cuba, the first symposium of California wine in Cuba. It happened by happenstance. I was at a Zinfandel event, and I asked Joel Peterson, who had Ravenswood, I was like, Joel, you've been everywhere. Hey, have you ever been to Cuba? I got a real interest in being Cuba, going to Cuba. And he said, uh, no, 
but, but there's a trip. You gotta go. You gotta go. So I, I sent a note to the guy, he said, he said, come on down. So we went down and presented our wines to the Cuban government in the advent that we had free trade and were able to take wines down there. Of course, in our current political scenario, that's not going to happen anytime soon. But when we started talking to Cubans, we started realizing, wow, you know, Cuba, never had the money for herbicides or pesticides. They've been organically farming all of this time. And they're better for it. Cancer rates, you know, it's a, it's a thing. They don't, they don't have them like we do. So certainly they have other, you know, issues related to government, um, well, management of agriculture and other industries that, you know, maybe don't serve them as well, but it's neither here nor there. <laughs> so that gives a pretty good idea of what your vineyard philosophy is. So I'm curious yeah. how that couples with your winemaking philosophy. What would you say your winemaking philosophy is? What do yeah. you want people to get out of your bottle? Yeah, I think I'm pretty low interventionist. I think that I, I, I hesitate to use the term natural wines because I don't think that anything made by a human is natural. Uh, natural is a very uh, manipulated term in the 1970s, and we have a environmental law history that uh, I could point to uh, in, 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 in regards to the term natural. But I would say that I, I, I'm a craft winemaker. I don't make very much wine. I have the luxury of making exactly how I want to because I'm selling direct to consumer, and I have the luxury of not. Uh, because I'm not making very much wine, I can make it m mindfully uh, with less input. Hmm. On the other hand, if I have a mistake, I got a problem, I can't hide it. <laughs> 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 I haven't had any problems until this year. I think that um, my volatile acidity in the vineyard, uh, you know, uh, it kind of came into the winery, but. I was talking to Andy Young, he's got St. Reginald's Parish, he's making wines in the building, in, in, the, in the Coila building as well. And he's, he, he, I, I told him my numbers and he said, that's not bad at all. He said, VA is how a wine gets its wings. <laughs> <laughs> that stayed with me and it's, it's just hilarious. Um, I don't know. Everything's tasting great though, so I'm, I'm happy. Well, that's always good. <laughs> so since you're you're in a you're in a vineyard here with not necessarily the grapes you would have chosen to plant, what are you making right now, and where are you going for for grape sources outside of here? Uh, well, I began with Johan in '16 and '17. I used Johan and Belle Promenade, which is one of Flanor's two vineyards. Uh, Russ Leichenthal, who has been their, uh, their head of marketing, also dropped out of the master line with me. Um, he went back in. We'll see. I'm hoping for the best for him. <laughs> but of course, Grant Coulter's over there, and Grant called me up and asked him whether I would like some, some, some of their Chardonnay. And I, I took some. It was, it's a beautiful one. Uh, when it came to last year, I didn't know what my grape supply was going to be like, or whether I was going to need to sell. I was really just it just purchased, and we were uh, just trying to get our, our our feet underneath us. And I ended up picking for some rosé, um, chardonnay, and pinot noir all here. 
Uh, so even though I said I was only going to make Chardonnay, well, I lied. <laughs> I changed my mind. Uh, I had the grapes and I thought it would be a great opportunity to experiment with everything and so we did and then of course uh, I sold some grapes as well too to my friend Junichi Fujita, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and Jess Miller for her sparkling program and her still wine program. She's got little crow wines. And uh, yeah, we, we all had some pretty good success with the grapes and as we got into this year, I didn't know what kind, you know, how much Pinot Noir I was going to end up with. I ended up selling all of my Chardonnay. The good news is the pickers that I had in here did such a terrible job. They left me a half a ton of grapes. <laughs> so, in a back, in a, you know, in a, in, a, in a fortunate sense, I ended up with, you know, a half barrel of uh, Chardonnay that, I, that that's now sitting in a beautiful Francois Frere uh, barrel, uh, doing its thing and uh, um, I pressed for a sparkling. Uh, I think given the altitude that we're at, uh, given the high acid and the diurnal shift that, that we enjoy all season long, we, are, we maintain a lot of acidity up here and so I decided to go with a, a sparkling pressing. I don't really know what I'm going to do with it yet, but it gives me something to do to figure out between now and then. I was like, I figured hey, at least it can be a sub beginning of a Solera sparkling project. And I'll talk to a few people, figure it out later, but at least the wines are pressed and uh, we'll take it from there. As you can tell, probably from the path, I, I haven't really been living in fear. <laughs> Uh, I've, I, I guess if I have a character flaw, aside from just being completely irreverent 99% of the time, it, it, it is uh, the fact that I, uh, I, I just do things without perhaps thinking. Uh, the, 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 the ultimate result of that decision will make, and I think that once my heart goes in a direction, it's, 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 I'm way out in front. <laughs> of myself. Not the worst thing. <laughs> Not the worst thing. There it is. So with your uh, Perkins Harder label, uh, yes. your, your labels are incredibly unique with artwork from uh, artists of different backgrounds. I'm curious, uh, what do you look for when choosing artists and artwork and, and how does the art reflect the wine and vice versa? My first label that I used in uh, California I, you know, I first hired a, uh, I was really wrapped around the axle about a brand and, you know, it's just so intimidating initially to think about it and I'm in awe of the kids now that are like millennials and they're just like, I'm just going to draw my own label, I'm going to slap it on and I don't care really what it looks like because it's fun <laughs> and, and I wish I had a little bit more of that but I'm so OCD and I can get kind of like wrapped around, you know, myself and get in my own way and so I hired somebody to help me out with a label that somebody had recommended and she came up with nothing, man, it, she sucked. <laughs> And so I had a friend visiting from Colorado, and I was like, hey, who do we know? She's like, oh, yeah, Randy, a friend of ours, Randy Piwan. He's an artist in, in New Mexico. Uh, I called him up, and I said, hey, man, I, I, really, I really need some help with a, a label. I just, uh, I got nothing. I, 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 you know, I think the world of your artwork and... His work is like hyper-realistic, night scenes, beautiful, I mean, loving guy. And he said, I'd be honored. I'll be on a plane this weekend. So he flew on out, you know, went out to the vineyard, 
at Teldesky and it was like February, there was like nothing out there except a little bud break. So, and some flowers starting to come, kind of come out and so that's what the first label was. But uh, Randy had some health issues. He was about to do my Chardonnay uh, label and uh, he was in a heart surgery and had a stroke and he's doing much better now, but he, uh, he, he, couldn't, he, he at the time couldn't go into the Chardonnay label. So I, I turned to my other friend, Pierre Tutenderbeck, who I also knew from the West, I, from my time in, in New Mexico. And um, Pierre and his wife, Claudia, and I used to do it, and my husband used to adventure around the Southwest together doing a lot of artwork work and, and, and through all this time of doing these other things I've always been a painter and mostly landscape a lot of you know a lot of um, abstract landscapes it's something that is just who I am is something I've always done and um, Pierre I didn't I never I didn't want to look at my own artwork every single day because I'd want to be needling it and say oh I should have just done that just a little bit differently so I think may, maybe eventually I could live with something on my label but it could irritate me endlessly um, yes, so Pierre uh, was a photojournalist who, uh, he grew up in Normandy, his family made Calvados, and uh, his father was in the textile business, he, uh, his father um, redid all of the, 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 the the silk and, and, and all of the furniture coverings in Versailles. Like he just didn't just do fabrics, he did textiles like in a big way. His mother was I think an opera and, um, and, and, and Pierre wanted to be a photojournalist. So he went out to, he went off to like Vietnam and Burma and he had, he worked for the French media in Southeast Asia for 35 years and um, went through a series of life events. He ended up uh, at one point living with the Dalai Lama for a couple of years. He became a monk until I finally asked him about it. I'm like, why did you not stick around there? She's like, they actually came to me and said, you're not like monk material, you gotta go. <laughs> he's like, you know, he's like, frankly, that was fine because, uh, uh, well. <clears throat> yeah, I think the, the Dalai Lama laughs a lot and it might irritate people. <laughs> Um, at times, so 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 Pierre he ended up coming back to the West and working for the you know King of Morocco. Ended up running a photo photography museum in the middle of France. And meanwhile, uh, Claudia, my friend from Oregon, um, had left. Uh, she had split up with her husband on the coast of Oregon and, and, and gone to France. And they met and decided. Uh, to move to New Mexico where I met them and they, uh, wow, I, I, I just can't speak uh, any more highly about two people I know that are like parents that, you know, that are not, that are friends, uh, that are like parents, that are like friends. I think we have some of those. And so uh, have Pierre's artwork, uh, his, 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 his photographs of the Oregon coast on my first three bottlings is totally important to me. They're glorious and, you know, he's just an incredible photographer and um, it's a loving human being. So, uh, so that's great. And then this, these most recent, uh, the most recent artwork I have now is my husband's mother's paintings. There's, I have some of them here. You can see the ones with the, with the houses. Uh, my husband's parents met at Yale in art class. They, uh, Joseph Albers, 
uh, art class, actually. They homage to the square. Mm -hmm. It's a very uh, graphic square color in study, you know, series that Albers did. And it's so obtuse, so I, I, it's, it always befuddled me why they could fall, fall in love in an art class where a guy basically just was really into squares. But that aside, um, his mother uh, was one of the first women to go to Yale for art, and her, her, great, her grandfather was an American Impressionist, uh, Walter Baum, pretty well-known uh, uh, and, um, you know, collectible. We have one of his paintings over there as well, and he, uh, yeah, yeah, he made his he made his life supporting uh, his family as an artist and starting an art museum in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Uh, so Peter is put up with my antics, I think, in part because he does come from a legacy of artists. But his mother's paintings are on on the 2018 bottles, and. Uh, you know, from there, I, I just realized I know so many artists. So many of my friends are painters and artists, and I, I, I'm honored to have approached, you know, and humbled to be to to have uh, a number of them agree to bring their artwork to my upcoming labels over time. And some of them, I look forward to Erin Courier. She's a Erin uh, is a artist in New Mexico who. Uh, uh, paints on collage and uh, she paints strong women and her series right now a lot of her paintings have been geared towards uh, women on both sides of the wall uh, disassembling it mm -hmm. the Navajo women on the north and the native Mexicans on the on the, on the south and, and I mean what does this say about where we are I'm okay I've been very involved with environmental issues but at some point you know, we taught, we need to start talking about social issues more, you know, readily and what they really mean to this industry. I think in this year's labor market, we, we, we don't have the labor and we have really insane politics when it comes to immigration. I think I'm not saying anything that we don't already know, but um, yeah, it's uh, so I, I'm, I think I, I'm thinking so uh, readily about the environmental side, but there's a real super, there's a, there's a social element that we really need to address to be sustainable in this industry as we go forward. Um, and think about the health of our employees, not covering them with herbicides and pesticides. In a, in a recent AVA meeting, I, uh, one of our members said, I don't know how to take care of my fence line without herbicides. And I said, frankly, I don't know how you can put your fence line's importance above human health and the employees, the workers that are coming to your vineyard. I think it's morally bankrupt. And I think we need to take a hard look of where humans play a role in what we're doing to our land. It's, it's, you know, so I think, well, I started off pretty conservative with the labels, and they might get a little bit in your face over time. Um, just because I think I've gotten comfortable enough with my wine that I, I can now begin entertaining the conversation uh, on the label mm -hmm. and with the land mm -hmm. and starting to pull that all together. Um, so I guess I'm in some way just kind of formulating what the path is going to be now that I'm starting to put all the pieces together. 
um, there's a lot to say and try to pack into that box. Um, and I'm not saying that's the appropriate box to put those messages in, but it's who I am, so voila. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't even know what to say, but uh, yeah. yeah, we could always do better. Uh, since we're kind of in a philosophical bent here today, which is perfect, I'm curious yeah. to you in your mind, what, what is the role of wine? What, is, what role does wine play in a, in a culture? I think it's all things to, it's different things to different people. And it's all things to all people, to some people. I mean, it, it can, you know, it, it can run the gamut. I think that definitely we're in a maturation phase where, you know, it's becoming more of a food stuff. And I think that branding and marketing might be keeping us into a rut in some ways, you know, with uh, how, let's say, maybe uh, larger buyers are pushing things out into the marketplace. Um, that is to say, um, the advent of social media and Instagram and conversations about uniqueness. And it's hard to think that even the concept of unicorn wines has only been, it's only like a decade old, you know? So how far, how, how fast we can come and, and embrace different varieties and varietals. Um, this, the, 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 our ability to research and communicate more extensively so we can find new clones. Um, I guess we've, we've deconstructed our knowledge. The industry has almost deconstructed itself in places where experimentation is more readily acceptable and revered and rewarded. I, I don't, I, I think we, you know, we're operating in a world where we have t a couple of different industries. So wine means things, different things to different people. Some people, it might be just an alcohol delivery system. They're, they're spending under $10. They don't care about the additives or the fact that it was in a million gallon tank or that the oak is powdered or what have you. And meanwhile, there are others, and I think that you know the millennials have done the wine industry a massive service. Say what you think we will about a millennial, they're actually dragging us. You know, they're dragging us into the future. I, I'm a Gen Xer, and I, I'm proud of our millennials because they're 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 dragging us into the future, and they're bringing along with them a need for information and experience, and. Um, variety and a tolerance for variety and a tolerance for all of those things where you go to a menu now and you know if, you, if, you, if you're just looking at Pinot Chardonnay and Pinot Gris you know you're, the whole wine program is lost. It's lost. There's no, there's no creativity. There's no mindfulness. It's a, it's a desert. It's an intellectual desert. And so, yeah, I'm not saying that, you know, uh, uh, that without millennials, we would be still an intellectual wine desert. I'm just saying that they've had a, a massive impact on, on, on the path forward. Um, so what is wine? You know, I think it's increasingly becoming part of our culture because it is a, it is a mode of, it is a 
mode of conversation. It is a purpose for conversation. It, it's, it's not just getting chugged down. It's being had with food. Mm -hmm. it, it's being enjoyed in its proper habitat, not under fluorescent lighting in a, in a, in a soulless room. Uh, you know, we can do better uh, in, in through, through, through proper experiential drinking that involves friends and foodstuffs and great views. Um, this is sustainability. I mean, this falls into the human element of sustainability, you know? Not the monoculture of chug it down. <laughs> Oregon's the wrong, definitely the wrong place for that. Uh, so you're just getting started here with your with your project here. Yes. Uh, just getting your feet under you. What are you hoping for as you look ahead for yourself and your and your space here? Well, it's a work in progress, of course. I'm only I've only been here a year, so I, I think I'm in some ways I'm making it up as I go along. I think when I look at various areas around the vineyard, I. I want so much of it yesterday. I want some of it, so much of it right now. And for me, it's about how can I stage it out to the future. I, I, I'm thinking less about wine sales and wine volume. I think that having the land has made me think um, really um, methodically about how I'm going to stage growth mm -hmm. uh, with the vineyard first and then with wine. Mm -hmm. Uh, that is to say, I don't know if I can, ha you know, to what extent I can have visitors up here or whether I can actually make wine here a process. And that's something that I need to explore. Um, it may or may not be appropriate. I think I can farm stand or something of that sort. But, you know, the vineyard is easier to talk about first because I've put so much time and thought into cleaning up the vineyard. I want to eliminate my tilling. I, I want to make sure I'm keeping the carbon in the soil and also the wind is drying the soil so I'm losing water. So the sooner that I can get to a no-till scenario, the better. My far block is permaculture, is basically a permaculture block, if you will. I intend to live over there and I, 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 we basically just drilled, dug holes in the ground, planted the vines and we've left them be. We did some hand watering over the summer just to keep them, some of them alive, but some will die, many will die and that's okay. Because this is actually, um, a natural selection missile. Whatever lives is going to like survive Armageddon, <laughs> because uh, the, the the weak the weak vines that come from a nursery. When you, when you get vines from a nursery, they're not all created equal. Uh, there are many weak vines within that batch, and we're routing them out pretty quickly. Um, so. So now that I think we feel like we've gotten the, the soils mechanically clean, we just really need to manage the, the vigor of the vines in this really awkward time where we can't use herbicides, we can't really readily mechanically harvest, uh, mechanically till underneath the uh, vines. So it's gonna be a lot of mowing and weed whacking for the next couple of years. And we're moving into biodynamics. I just planted my first set of horns and my barrel compost. Dan Rinke's been helping me out with some, uh, kind of coaching me on, on, on viticulture. He's been, you know, he's a wonderful guy, he's a gem. And he's been uh, just trying to keep me honest on the path and making sure that I follow through on the things that I need to get done so they actually happen because it's one thing being organic and limiting things out of a vineyard but then what are you going to put in and how mindfully you're going to be about and diligent about 
spreading them when, where, and for what reason, uh, keeping in, in mind your petiole analysis and your soil chemistry and whether, you know, that even if you are adding in nutrients, are they actually getting to where they need to be? And so I think there's room for some improvement there. And then maybe even thinking about um, sprays that might suppress mildew uh, by introducing, you know, more Saccharomyces or more um, organisms into the vineyard. Because at the end of the day, when we think about long-term, I'm having worked on environmental models that try to envision a future 30,000 years from now. I'm, I'm, I've got that always hanging in the back of my head as just a normal way of operating. So, so, so how are you going to, you know, how am I going to manage the soils for, for, so they don't become degraded and that we have an additive process so they continue to be built up and then under threat of all kind of environmental conditions we can't even envision. How can we have a resilient, robust biosphere that can snap back from an antagonist, whether it's a bug, whether it's a virus, whether it's a bacterium? How can we have robustness and built into the uh, into the system? And you can call it under whatever name you'd like, because there's plenty of tag terms for these environmental concepts. But building soil resiliency is the number. You know, we shouldn't be going to Mars. I, I did a spot project. I researched. Um, I researched. Um, I handled a research project for SpaceX on the side for Elon Musk's group sure. and because as one might of course uh, they're trying to put like a capsule uh, up into space for two weeks to two years as a market uh, to take over from the space shuttle and they're trying to figure out what the market was going to be for low earth orbit um, you could put up your little locker experiment for two weeks to two years up in the uh, up in the sky and have it circle around and we looked at you know material metamaterials and, and genetic experiments and you know material sciences gallium nitride you know point to point experiments all kinds of things but you know why you know if we just got our agricultural industry off drugs <laughs> and use that money to get instead of going to mars can we just get our soils off drugs we'd be in a much better place <laughs> you know we got heroin problems we got heroin problems it's just in in in, in agricultural the heroin problem is it, it's a it's a different kind of fear and it's a different kind of marketplace that um we're not adequately supporting as a matter of policy and regulation all I got on that but <laughs> you know again that one would require probably a longer conversation over a stronger beverage um, I could definitely tirade about big ag <laughs> um, and it, the, here's the thing we can't do we can't make changes in every farm in the United States and at the high at the larger level every incremental change has massive impact. So if you can make a small impact over a great area, it's fabulous. But as small wine growers, there's no reason why we can't get off drugs. Mindfully. 
So as you're as you're looking to as you're looking ahead in the vineyard and, and in your winemaking, are you, you you talked a bit about experimentation earlier mm -hmm. and, and about different kind of varietals? Are you thinking in terms of doing <laughs> yeah. different doing different stuff? Yeah, I yeah, assume yeah, I know the answer. Yeah, to yeah, this. absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, how can I resist? We've cleared some land to the north. I've got five, you know, five or six acres up there. A couple in the middle, and you know, a little bit over here. There will be Gamay. There will be Aligote. Um, maybe some Aligote mixed in. I know there's talk of having the single variety designations, but man, what's you know? I don't I think I don't think the purpose is to sweat out the one or two, three percent Aligote mixed in with my Chardonnay. I think if we go down that road, it's a slippery slope to you know intolerance uh, and, and less artfulness. So I think we should have some flexibility at the risk of the perils of you know uh, trying to keep regulatory uh, uh, or or Oregon mm -hmm. products from being completely exploited or the name of Oregon products. Nobody's for that. So, so yeah, we will certainly see. I think uh, I'm going to also look towards field grafting. I might not want to make, them make the choice of the scion material on the top immediately, but time's wasting. I might as well get some rootstock in the ground and put some, some, some vines on there as, as I decide what I want to be in there. I, there's, a, there's, there's some wiggle room in those years, but, you know, the hard thing about in in my in my life, I've found that I really have um, a capacity to resist reducing my options. <laughs> so I want to keep that door open as long as possible because I'm always changing my mind, and you know I read a lot. I spend a lot of time studying everything um, that I'm interested in, and I. Uh, I, I will change my mind again and again, and that's okay. So we need to do this like every week, then basically. Yeah. Just keep, follow, <laughs> just keep following up on where you're, where you're at that day. Yeah, guilty. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I do have dreams of all kinds of sensors at times, but then I figure, well, it's kind of Faustian. If I overstudy something, kind of like, you know, Yucca Mountain, I have that in the back of my head where I think technology can be really useful and interesting. But then when you, if you look at something, you can kind of understand about 90% of it, and the further you get down that path of trying to understand more, you're getting greedy, and it will bite you. Um, I think we got it five billion dollars in the Yucca Mountain, and, and we could have been, just said, "Hey, you know those crack things? Have we, you know, the water can go down through those?" And yeah, um, do we got a handle on that? I don't know. Um, <laughs> really? So, uh, you know, it's a forest trees, mm -hmm. you know, grapes of the vines thing. So I, I think that, uh, yeah, I this. This project will keep me off the streets, uh, or on the streets, I don't know which, uh, but hopefully off the streets and thinking creatively and, and about the legacy I intend to leave behind. There makes no financial sense to plant a vineyard or own a vineyard. It's a, it's a legacy and I can only try to leave this place in a better, more cultured, you know, when you talk about permaculture, a more permanently cultured status than how I found it. Mm -hmm.
And I think we've already come a long way just in terms of cleaning up the place and, 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 and trying to define its boundaries and think about how the place needs to flow. But, I mean, I think the term permanent cult, permaculture, people really just kind of start using that as a interspersed with, oh, I kind of just let it go wild. No, it's about creating a, a resilient farm, a resilient place that that can maintain a permanent culture. Nothing's permanent, but at least we can go for longevity and uh, resilience. That's all I got. So tell me about, since you're really new to the Oregon industry, tell me about the Oregon industry that you've come into and, and what, you're, what you see as you look ahead. Well, obviously I came here because I was bullish on it is a location for me to make high acid Chardonnay. That was my immediately goal. Like I really wanted to make some sinewy, you know, really, you know, focused high acid Chard. And, and, and I've done that. <laughs> I definitely am on the Shibli Zen side of things. I think many people are trying to go towards a rounder, more unctuous kind of feel. And I, uh, and I like it pretty lean. That said, yeah, I, I, the industry, uh, it, it, when I came up here in 2016, things were kind of hopping and it was, you know, it was people were really, really just shopping for land, trying to get on the scene. People had shown up and they got, got new projects. Um, meanwhile, there's a an incredible legacy uh, that was built in the 60s, 70s, and 80s here, uh, quarry clones onwards. You know, we, you know, as you know, I've spent some time in the Linfield Library, <laughs> poking around, reading, you know, all of the old files and and, 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 and all of the all of the um, uh, types of wine that were tried through the steamboat records and. and, and and some of the failures and based on looking at some of the chemical profiles or maybe they were fantastic, used to know. And uh, yeah, the industry here, you know, it, 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 it's changing fast. Again, first and foremost, as an environmentalist, I get concerned about development. I came into a place that had already begun development. So I felt a lot better than not having to take down many trees, but more trees will come down. Hopefully, um, uh, the, the mindfulness in the industry groweth. Uh, it's great to see organizations like the Oak Trust and the preservation of native oak and habitat. I think once you spend some time in Napa and Sonoma and you see, mostly Napa, and you just see insane monoculture driven by land value that can only be validated um, by, it's, well, it becomes circular. You got $30,000 a ton Cabernet or $50,000 a ton Cabernet, so you've got to plant Cabernet, so you can, you know, pay your mortgage, so you can buy the land that you, you know, because you need that land to grow the, to grow the Cabernet, and it becomes this vicious cycle, you know, the Bextoffer model, where the, the great value is attached to the, 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 
uh, land value and the, and the, the per acre ton and the bottle value is all tied in together. So I guess it's really tonnage and, great, and bottle value. But what results is over time is this massive balloon and then you kind of have to wonder, well, how is a $100, a $500 bottle of wine sustainable? Um, it's probably put in some heavy glass, it's probably really expensive to ship, it has a bigger carbon footprint. It's sustainable for some people that have massive amounts of income, which a lot of many Californians do, um, and many people around the world do. Um, but it takes wine out of, out of the food context and it puts it into a trophy context. And I think that there's something really unhealthy about that because wine as a status symbol is not serving uh, the approachability of wine and its use as a foodstuff versus misuse as a status symbol or trophy beverage, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. um, at, at our AVA meeting last night, there was a new campaign for advertising and I took a little bit of an issue mm -hmm. because I do tend to take issue with things without a filter, most notably, uh, of a couple getting into a helicopter and flying to the Eola Hills. And I just feel like it misses the mark. I don't, I, I think it's a, a double-edged sword because wine is aspirational. You know, in, in many instances, there is the unicorn, there is the trophy wine, and I think that might be heavy for, that helpful in some ways for uh, making notoriety of an area. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I, I just, I, I'm not in Oregon, can I, so I can't say what is or isn't this place. I just got here. But I can observe coming in from other places um, and having lived in US and other countries, I just don't see um, why helicopters are an important part of the wine conversation when I think that a good part of the marketplace out there would rather learn about sustainability. They'd rather, you know, get together and have a sustainable meal learning about regenerative agriculture. Uh, rather than flying across the valley. And, and you know, look, it takes all kinds. That's great. But as a matter of self-definition, I, I think we could do better. So, and again, I'm coming at this as an environmentalist. So what do you see as you look ahead? What do I see as I look ahead? I see... I, I can see, literally see the corners where I can, I can envision the development. Uh, having had the experience of being in California, I can see where the traffic is going to go. I can get a good handle what areas are going to change at various rates. My father's a real estate developer, so I, I can't resist looking at a place and seeing what its development curve is going to, envisioning what that curve is going to be like. 
I can see like the, for example, the corridor on like Bethel Road or, you know, Xena Road going over the hillside is really being a, a hot spot um, for our AVA. It's pretty quiet down here at this end. But I can see that that will probably be, for, for a while, the southernmost expansion of uh, the tourist fray. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, for the industry at large, I can't see where it's going to go. I haven't really spent enough time here to even know enough people to think I even have a handle on it. I barely have a handle on my neighborhood because I can't figure out the, 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 the helicopter versus other things that people might be interested in thing. Um, but I'm just happy to be here and ha you know, be a part of it. Uh, and yeah. winemaker, I knew in Sonoma, used to say like, hey, I don't need to make the best wine. I'd, just, I'd be happy to sing in the choir. You know, I think it's great just to be, uh, be up here and be part of things, making the kind of wines that I want to make. I, I don't need to be active and vociferous or redirect anything or um, be the center of attention in any sense. I'm, I'm, I'm so happy just having this project and being part of the conversation and through my conversations, if I can keep somebody off drugs, you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the, the, the herbicides and, 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 and to some extent pesticides. Um, I think that's important. I'm here to, to, to be, help illustrate the risks of use um, versus direct anyone what to do. Um, I think um, the head of RIVA asked me to speak on a topic. I'm like, I couldn't think about what topic I'd actually speak about that would be of use to anybody. I certainly have an opinion <laughs> on just about everything when asked, uh, but I wouldn't presume to, 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 to tell anyone um, how to do anything that doesn't necessarily directly affect me. <laughs> it's a pretty good way to go through life, actually. Yeah. So if you met someone who was interested in entering the Oregon wine industry, what would your words of wisdom be for that person? <sighs> the wine industry, the vineyard side or the wine side? Depends. Whatever, whatever you uh, want, whatever you have an answer for, I suppose. We try to leave it as vague as possible. I think you try to do it as inexpensively as possible. I think that's a pretty good start. I think it's, you know, as we know, it's easier to make wine than sell it. So I think you want to know who your market's going to be. I think it helps to have an idea of where your groove and the larger thing, the scheme is going to be. Um, that is to say, are you going to be more on the mainstream conservative white tablecloth or your pricing going to be the happy to know you wine bar kind of pricing and be very clear about how you're going to enter the marketplace? I think I spent so much time learning to make wine. I, I didn't really ever really learn how to sell it. So I feel like, you know, I've got people helping me now, but I, I, I just, that was never my skill set. Again, I think that's the trappings of being an artist, that you have a lot of creativity, but you have, um, yeah, you can be self-delusional about, you know, the follow-through. <laughs> you know, and so, yeah, that's just the trapping of the kind of person I am, that I was like, maybe... 
immediately a little bit delusional about taking my wine club out of California making big reds and thinking that they were going to immediately translate and be like, yeah, I, we love high acid whites. We're totally on board. Let's take that castle. And it's taken people a little bit longer. And thankfully, and I think that's one reason I decided to bring you know, Pinot into my program because, you know, there's some people that are still thinking, you know, maybe in, and we asked him about the market earlier. Maybe we're still at the point where, you know, people are like, I'll have the red wine or I'll have the white wine. And maybe that's healthy because when they're thinking about it it's so simplistically that it's a food stuff. So I'm not going to judge entirely, but I will say that, uh, yeah, um, yeah, there's, 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 there's room for growth. <laughs> so all the questions that I have for Good. you today. I know you're running out of gas now. <laughs> Thank you so much for, yeah, no for joining us. Is there anything I should have asked that I didn't? Anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? Uh, let me see. I, uh, I think about, yeah, we, spoke, we did speak more about the vineyard, my philosophy here on the wine. You know, it's, it's always a work in progress, but I, I think that just trying to push minimal intervention is key. And at some point, I really want to have my own trials of how the organisms in the vineyard follow into the winery. That is to say this year when I ended up with some ethyl acetate, I started talking with friends about, you know, organisms, you know, the organisms in the, in the vineyard. It's not just a what, it's a when. And I think a conversation I had with Ginny Chu was about some winemakers who tracked their yeast populations in the vineyard and the difference between, you know, day one and day five can be a difference of 20 million, mm -hmm. you know, um, bacteria, you know, bacterium per liter from 5 million to 25. And so the pick date becomes incredibly important if you're not going to be inoculating. So I, I, I think for my purposes, you know, less is more, but you can't have less without the knowledge of how to appropriately attack less. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, you run into problems. And so, uh, in this laboratory, uh, it's going to be fun. Mm -hmm. Good. Yeah. Well, excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time, for your candor today, and your stories. <laughs> we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Cool. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.